Welcome to Dig, a history podcast. One hundred years ago, the United States passed the 19th Amendment, which declares the right of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of sex. Women had been granted the right to vote in a number of states, notably in the westernmost states first, a trend that moved eastward. Notably, in 1776, at its founding, New Jersey gave voting rights to all inhabitants of this colony of full age who are worth 50 pounds and have resided within the colony for 12 months. That language didn't exclude women, and so women voted. Then, in 1790, the law was revised to explicitly say he or she, clarifying that both men and women had voting rights. But then, in 1807, the Democratic Republicans passed a law restricting the vote to only tax-paying white male citizens. Women often voted for the opposing Federalist Party, so taking away women's voting rights helped the Democratic Republicans establish a stronger political advantage in Jersey. This law also took voting rights away from African Americans. When the suffrage movements took hold in the 19th century, the suffragists had success first on a state-by-state basis. The first in the new wave of suffrage laws was Colorado in 1893, followed by Utah and Idaho in 1896, Washington State in 1910, California in 1911, then Oregon, Kansas, and Arizona in 1912, and then Montana and Nevada in 1914 before the U.S. entered World War I. The 19th Amendment, however, was the first federal piece of legislation that guaranteed women the right to vote everywhere in the United States. At the time, its passage was not guaranteed, as we will discuss in this episode, and was the result of tireless, radical, and controversial work of suffragists. The women who led this movement had to mobilize a nation of other women to support an initiative that was quite radical in the 19th and early 20th centuries. The state-by-state passage of suffrage laws from west to east was indicative of how radical people in the period thought of women voting. I'm Elizabeth. And I'm Avril. And we are your historians for this episode of DIG. We want to give a special thanks to our newest auger level patrons, Maddie and Anne. Welcome, Maddie and Anne. You're both amazing, wonderful, the best. We decided to kick off 2020 with an episode celebrating women's suffrage in the United States. A little world history sprinkled in. Of course. Followed by a few revamped old favorites from our previous podcasting project. Though they're not as easily tied together as previous series that we've done, I'm sure you, dear listeners, will see their implicit and explicit connections anyway. We are historians of sex and gender, bodies and medicine, race and imperialism. And as a kickoff to a new year, a year in which we will release our 100th episode, 
in which I will complete my degree to become the fourth PhD on the show, and we can all celebrate the 19th Amendment with an election in November. Get out the votes, ladies. It felt quite all right to have a hodgepodge series to kick it all off. Indeed. And today is grand because we've joined a fabulous new community of educational podcasters at a little group called Lyceum, an offshoot of our friends at Himalaya, which we'll be telling you more about in the coming months. So be sure to follow us on Twitter or Facebook for the fabulous news on that front. It's very exciting. National democracy, as we know it now, is very much a modern invention, particularly in European and European colonies. Most states were monarchies until the 19th century. While there was democracy, quote unquote, and elected officials at local or regional levels, the idea of a large nation state republic was really floated as an idea in the 18th century, starting in Europe and in the American colonies. Well, these republics were being envisioned, and then revolutions were launched to found said republics in France and Haiti, the American colonies, etc. One of the most important questions asked was, who would be a citizen of these republics? Who would be a voter and have a say in how things went? Europe was patriarchal, and most Europeans saw the world in a pretty rigid, male-dominated social hierarchies, uh, with one man at the head of all levels of life. The government, the church, the family. Generally, ideas about citizenship in places like the American colonies and Britain were further limited by class and race standards as well as gender. But many, men and women, challenged these norms from very early on and had been challenging them even before Republic entered the public lexicon. Still, when these democracies were established, many of the traditions of previous eras, including a property-owning, white, male-centered conceptualization of citizenship, dominated the quote-unquote new systems. And Europeans exported this model wherever they went and established colonies. A few early democracies extended the vote to women early on. In 1718, Sweden taxpaying guild members were permitted to vote, and that included taxpaying guild women. This right was rescinded, however, in 1772. The Corsica Diet passed a law allowing women to vote in 1755, but that was rescinded in 1769 when the French annexed Corsica. These conversations about citizenship and gender and the folks who championed the inclusion of women, people of color, and other marginalized groups in the boundaries of citizenship continued from the earliest Republican conversations and revolutions throughout the 19th and 20th centuries. Though the circumstances were different in each case, Sweden and Corsica evidence, and New Jersey for that matter, that women's right to vote was undercut by anti-enlightenment debates and sentiments. In the U.S., the 19th century ideals of Victorian public and private spheres worked against the idea that women should even be able to vote. Now, in America, after the American Civil War, women's suffrage supporters organized the American Equal Rights Association, or AERA, ERA? Sure, why not? Yeah, no, yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, in 1866. The debates over the 14th and 15th Amendments caused a major split in the coalition of white women's rights advocates aligned with proponents of voting rights for black men. The women's rights and abolitionist movements had been closely tied, 
almost one and the same since the early 19th century. For example, Frederick Douglass was one of the signers of the Declaration of Sentiments at the 1848 Seneca Falls Women's Rights Convention, and women's suffrage advocates like Elizabeth Cady Stanton began their careers as abolitionists. So they had deep ties to one another. But the debates over these two constitutional amendments pitted votes for women against votes for black men. The first clause of the 14th Amendment provided an expanded definition of national citizenship, a philosophical expansion of who was included in we the people. The amendment extended citizenship to, quote, all persons born or naturalized in the United States and decreed that, quote, no state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. So basically, this is kind of a natural rights argument, meaning that if the amendment passed with this language alone, all citizens of the United States would have equal rights, including women. And of course, that could never be. How on earth would the Republic survive if women with you know, all their lady bits were allowed to vote? <laughs> it would be total anarchy. <laughs> <laughs> so to make the amendment passable, Section 2 was written to only protect the voting rights of male inhabitants. In fact, the amendment was the first time that mail was inserted into the Constitution at all. Section 2 overrode the three-fifths clause in the Constitution, but in doing so, qualified the words inhabitants and citizens with the male sex. Then the 15th Amendment declared that states could not deny the right to vote based on race, color, or previous conditions of servitude. The amendment did not mention sex. These were deliberate insertions and omissions that led to fierce debates among advocates for women's suffrage. Though many suffragists were part of the abolitionist movement to end slavery, they were not immune to racial prejudice. Elizabeth Cady Stanton claimed, quote, it's better to be the slave of an educated white man than of a degraded black one, arguing that black men's would be, quote, despotic if granted the vote. Though Susan B. Anthony believed in universal suffrage, she felt that if only one group were to be given the vote, it should be white women. She infamously stated that she would rather, quote, cut off this right arm of mine before I will ever work for or demand the ballot for the Negro and not the woman. In 1869, Stanton and Anthony split with others in the women's rights movement and formed the National Women's Suffrage Association, whose sole focus was the immediate voting rights for women. The two women's suffrage organizations did not join forces again until 1890, when they combined to form the National American Women Suffrage Association, or NAUSA. Oh. Do people say NAUSA? Uh, not NASA, not I. But like I, people say the acronym. You can say NASA. It's N A W S A. I like. Let's it. call it NASA. It sounds like we're going down to NASA. We're going down. to NASA. Let's go on down. N A W S A. Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Susan B. Anthony, and other women suffragists tried a new legal strategy that they called the New Departure. They argued that, by its very nature, citizenship conferred the right to vote on men and women alike. 
1872, hundreds, maybe even thousands, of women across the country, from New Jersey to California, went to their local voter polls and said that they were there to vote on the basis that they were citizens of the United States and that they were determined to submit their votes for president. Many women were arrested and then later filed lawsuits. Essentially, this was part of the plan. They were pushing for a test case, which they could then, you know, it would make its way to the Supreme Court and hopefully be decided favorably to affirm that, yes, women are citizens and therefore naturally have the right to vote. One of these women was Susan B. Anthony. Anthony went with her friends and family to the Republican polling place in Rochester, New York, just a stone's throw from where we're standing right now. (laughs) She explained why she believed she had the right to vote, basing her argument on the recently passed 14th Amendment, which had been ratified five years before. She insisted that Section 1 of the 14th Amendment says that all persons born in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States. Basically, she was like, No one can doubt that I am a person. (laughs) Hence, I am a citizen of the United States and thus entitled to vote. Apparently, no one at the Republican polling place could doubt her personhood (laughs) because they let her vote. She also more than likely threatened to sue them if they didn't (laughs) let her vote. Soon, however, U.S. Marshals came to her home and arrested her. The warrant charged Anthony with voting in a federal election, quote, without having a lawful right to vote and in violation of Section 19 of an Act of Congress enacted in 1870. And it was commonly referred to as the Enforcement Act. It was actually part of one of three that came along a little later. So they were called the Enforcement Acts. Interestingly, this was in and of itself a new crime. Earlier arrests under the same law had only been made for recalcitrant Confederate rebels, but it was applied to Anthony and other women like her. She was arrested under the Enforcement Act and brought before a federal judge and a federal jury. In court, the judge did not even let the jury deliberate. He instructed them to find her guilty. So they did. As a result of other ways he kind of instructed her case, she was unable to appeal her case, which defeated kind of the purpose of this entire action. She and others wanted to be able to argue their interpretation of the 14th Amendment and have their interpretation vindicated at the highest level of possible in the U.S. Supreme Court. One woman, Virginia Minor of Missouri, managed to get her case to the Supreme Court, but with devastating results. In 1875, Minor versus Happerstedt, a case between Virginia Minor and the registrar of her polling place, who was a man called Happerstedt, um, set back women's suffrage for just generations. It also had major negative consequences for newly enfranchised black men and for civil rights of all citizens. The Supreme Court heard and rejected the suffragists' argument. The justices agreed that, yes, women were persons, and yes, persons were citizens of the United States, but determined that voting was not a right of national citizenship. Instead, voting was a privilege bestowed by the separate states on those that each considered worthy. It was a privilege, not a right. The courts essentially decided that the U.S. Constitution gives the national government almost no role in controlling voting. It gives the states total sovereignty over the right to vote. 
This decision in 1875 decimated the potential for the suffragists to use the 14th Amendment or arguments of natural rights to support their cause. Further, it signaled significant changes to come, as soon thereafter the Supreme Court began issuing rulings that allowed states to do all kinds of things that actually violated the 15th Amendment, too. Because the U.S. Supreme Court began ruling in favor of states' rights, black men were effectively disenfranchised whenever and wherever a state sought to prevent a man from voting based on his skin color, and the 15th Amendment was virtually annulled. In seeking to enfranchise women, universal suffragists found themselves with an even steeper road to climb. Black women had always been part of the suffrage movement. As we stated earlier, the mainstream suffrage movement was closely tied with the abolitionist movement before the Civil War. Black women like Sojourner Truth and Harriet Tubman had been pro-women suffrage from the movement's earliest beginnings. It wasn't until internal fights over the 14th and 15th Amendments that some suffrage leaders like Anthony and Stanton showed the limits of their quest for equality after it became clear that African-American men would get the vote before white women, a development that was viewed at the time as degrading to white women. Conversely, because of their unique position, black women tended to focus on human rights and universal suffrage rather than suffrage solely for African Americans or for women alone. The question of whether votes for women meant all women or exclusively white women dates to the beginning of the suffrage movement. More and more black women joined the ranks of suffragists as the movement in the 19th century progressed. Black suffragists like Nanny Helen Burroughs stressed the need for black and white women to cooperate to achieve the right to vote. Black women worked with mainstream suffragists and organizations like the National American Women's Suffrage Association, NASA. Um, when they were able. But the mainstream organizations did not address the challenges faced by black women, such as negative stereotypes, harassment, and unequal access to jobs, housing, and education. Sound familiar? Mm Mm-hmm. After Reconstruction ended in 1877, there was a period of intense racial violence. It was an era of large-scale black disenfranchisement, Jim Crow law enforcement, and lynchings. For the most part, mainstream suffrage organizations started excluding or ghosting black women. There were, of course, exceptions, but essentially the mainstream suffrage organizations became white organizations. Often... Women's reform work and the fight for suffrage are treated as separate movements, but are actually closely related. Many reform organizations, like the Women's Christian Temperance Union, which we have a wonderful episode on, we will link you back to that if you are so interested in listening and haven't listened yet, eventually supported women's enfranchisement as a way to push forward their other primary reform goals. In the case of the WCTU, of course, that's temperance. Um, Even without the vote, the very active reform work in charitable and voluntary organizations allowed women to enter the political sphere, doing what we'd call growing the base. By the 1890s, maneuvering existing constitutional amendments to enfranchise women was really no longer possible. So women suffragists had to build their base, so to speak, and make the demand for voting rights meaningful to a significant number of average citizens. Abstract claims of universal justice and equal rights, the core of Susan B. Anthony's movement, had little appeal to many women, both white and black. 
But many women were inspired to push for political rights because it would impact women's daily lives. Ultimately, it was the WCTU that first spun suffrage as an issue that should be important to average women, both white and black. With the vote, the broader cause of temperance, which was already a large middle class movement, could be empowered. And the reason that they, I mean, so this is all because they can't use existing constitutional amendments, so they have to push for a new one. Right. right. So Minor versus Haberstadt and kind of Supreme Court machinations or whatever has have kind of closed the door yeah. for using existing constitutional. So they have to do the much harder work of getting, getting a new one. A, whole, a new one. Yeah. With three quarters of the states on board. Right. 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 Ooh. The WCTU was the largest women's association in the in the late 19th century and very well organized. Women were drawn to the temperance movement because initially because of its focus on how men's drinking impoverished families and subjected wives and children to physical abuse. They were really speaking out about domestic violence and about the sexual double standard, all things that they believed stemmed from alcohol, but also the absolute power that men had over women in all things, money, family decisions, etc. The holdovers, essentially, of coverture. Right. In 1884, a bit over a decade after it was formed, the WCTU became the first large organization outside of the suffrage societies themselves to announce that it was in favor of voting rights for women. One of the women who was responsible for this achievement was Frances Willard. Willard was a masterful politician. She was able to build up the WCTU and take very conventional, conservative, church-going women into one of the most radical women's movements of the decade, the suffrage movement. Willard became president of the WCTU in 1879, and she shifted the focus of the WCTU from one concentrated on closing saloons to an ambitious do-everything campaign. <laughs> Do all the things! We can! We're women! <laughs> um, she approached women's suffrage in a way that was fundamentally different from radicals like Susan B. Anthony. She didn't say that women needed the votes because of abstract justice or equal rights. She didn't say women needed the vote because they had the same rights and capacities and obligations as men, although she did think that they did. Instead, she argued that women deserve the right to vote because women and men were different. Their obligations and the spheres in which they lived and worked were fundamentally different, and their issues and concerns were different. Men could not be trusted to represent women because they just had no idea what women actually did and dealt with on a daily basis. Word. Hmm. According to Willard, women needed to go into politics to protect their own interests. Most importantly, women needed the vote to protect their homes. They needed to step outside and go into the public to protect their families, their homes, their husbands, and especially their children. 19th century women's suffrage was considered radical. It was associated with masculine women. Willard took it and rebranded it. She called it the home protection ballot, a cause that many women could get behind. This was particularly brilliant because it easily mixed women's private sphere with the public in a traditional, respectable, quote-unquote, way. Mm -hmm. For Willard, the vote was a tool for enforcing what most considered a conventional white Christian morality. But Willard also led the members of the WCTU to engage with a broadly progressive program. 
Still, the WCTU was such a large organization that there were many competing demands among the women in its membership. So as Willard attempted to grow WCTU membership in the South, she made moral compromises when it came to issues of race and segregation. So again, this was the era of Jim Crow, marked by an obscene number of lynchings. Between 1877 and 1950, about 4,000 black people, primarily black men, were lynched for perceived infractions, including attempting to register to vote. Ida B. Wells Barnett was a prominent journalist that championed anti-lynching, a cause she considered integral to the fight for voting rights. Originally from Memphis, Tennessee, she led an anti-lynching crusade after a white lynch mob attacked the press for which she published the free speech and headlight. Threats to her life forced her to move to Chicago, where she worked for the Chicago's conservator newspaper. In her Lynch Law of America, published in 1900, Wells Barnett argued that without representation in government, this lawlessness would continue to reign. To help obtain voting rights for black women, Wells Barnett founded the Alpha Suffrage Club of Chicago. She was a founder of the National Association of Colored Women that merged a number of black women's social clubs together and included suffrage within its platform. She was also a founding member of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, or the NAACP. Willard and Wells had a very public debate over Willard's lackluster support of Wells' anti-lynching campaign. In 1890, Willard was quoted as saying, Better whiskey and more of it is the rallying cry of a great dock-faced mob. The safety of women, of children, of the home is menaced in a thousand localities. So basically, Willard is saying that black people drink too much and are a menace. And she's playing into this basically a white southern trope of the black man as an evil brute out to rape delicate white women. Obviously, this did not sit well with Wells. She wrote that Willard, quote, unhesitatingly slandered the entire Negro race in order to gain favor with those who are hanging, shooting, and burning Negroes alive. So the episode shows how radical reform-minded women like Willard could still fall very short in the quest for full equality and work for suffrage and social welfare while also supporting a racial hierarchy. Nevertheless, black women did participate in the WCTU, especially when they had the power to control their own chapters. There were a number of black-run WCTU chapters throughout the North and South. As the common understanding of the scope of issues affecting women expanded, the WCTU's home protection ballot evolved into a universal call for women's suffrage. For the next 20 years, WCTU members served as the grassroots for the suffrage movement even though not all local WCTU chapters accepted the suffrage resolution. Some chapters ignored it completely, while others pushed for state and federal constitutional amendments to allow women the right to vote. The Nebraska State WCTU sent a petition to the United States House of Representatives in support of a constitutional amendment for women's suffrage. They said, quote, as wives, mothers, and citizens, we know our rights and will defend them. Peaceably, if we can, with severe measures, if we must. I'm not joking around. Frances Willard died in 1898, and the WCTU retreated from the agenda she'd set. 
it again became more conservative, although still an important venue for rural women, Midwestern women, and religious women to come into the suffrage movement. Without Willard's guiding hand, the WCTU stepped back from leading the suffragists' cause. Most of the radical members of the WCTU moved on into newer activist organizations, often those working exclusively for women's suffrage. For many, the WCTU was a stepping stone towards more progressive reforms. Towards the end of the 19th century, America became what some commentators called women club mad (laughs) because everybody and their sister was joining a women's club. Black women organized themselves into women's clubs just as much as white women. Black women's clubs were central to their reform efforts and support of women's suffrage. In 1896, the National Federation of Afro-American Women merged with the National League of Colored Women to form the National Association of Colored Women with with activist Mary Church Terrell as its first president. NACW's motto, Lifting as We Climb, reflected the organization's goal to uplift the status of black women. This meant that the mostly middle-class organization sought to influence the lives and circumstances of working-class black people. They'd go into neighborhoods to counsel poor black women on proper, quote-unquote, hygiene, child-rearing, and the like. Their political impact was formidable. The NACW maintained a suffrage department, the Equal Suffrage League, which mobilized local clubs to support suffrage. Terrell was a prolific speaker and traveled all over the world working for the advancement of African Americans. In many of her speeches, she pointed out to white women that did not support black women's suffrage that the exclusion of black women from voting because of race was no different than the exclusion of white women because of gender. Many African-American women reached out to the National American Women's Suffrage Association, NASA, and attempted to take part in suffrage activities. Some local chapters of NASA were accepting of black participation, others were not. In their ongoing efforts to gain Southern support, Northern suffragists held multiple meetings in the South. However, the 1901 and 1903 NASA conventions in Atlanta and New Orleans barred African Americans from attending. Attempts by black women to bring issues impacting their communities to NASA's attention were met with continual rejection. When Martha Grinning asked NASA to denounce white supremacy at the 1911 National Conference, President Anna Howard Shaw refused, asserting that while she was, quote, in favor of colored people voting, she did not want to anger other members of the movement. In 1913, Alice Paul and the Congressional Union of NASA organized a major suffrage parade in Washington, D.C. Paul had spent time in England working with British suffragettes and learned many of the more militant tactics British women used to publicize their suffrage cause. Paul used the inauguration of President Woodrow Wilson as a perfect time to host the D.C. suffrage parade in order to take advantage of the thousands of people who would already be in the city for the inauguration. Some contemporaries said that the suffrage parade garnered more spectators than the inauguration itself. 
And there are some pretty famous images from this parade that probably many of our listeners are familiar with. The parade began with Jane Walker Burleson as Grand Marshal on horseback with a model of the Liberty Bell. And next was the parade's herald, Inez Milholland, a suffragist and lawyer. She was dressed all in white, riding a white horse, and she had this huge pale blue cape draped over the horse's, you know, kind of draped behind her and onto the horse's haunches. Milholland's long hair was down and she looked like, you know, a kind of goddess leading the parade. So you've probably seen this picture before. Uh, she carried a banner that said forward into the light. Following her was a huge banner that read, we demand an amendment to the Constitution of the United States enfranchising the women of this country. Uh, roughly 8,000 marchers. So there are guesses between 5,000 and 10,000. I think most people have kind of decided on 8,000 right now. So roughly about 8,000 marchers, bands, parade floats, marched from the U.S. Capitol to the Treasury Building. And when you see pictures of this, it was it was a huge mm -hmm. event. Yeah. Some of the back and forth and lead up to the parade gives a good glimpse of what was going on in the suffrage movement in the intersection of race and gender. Essentially, Paul and other white organizers of the event were worried that an integrated parade would upset Southern supporters. She wrote she wanted to, quote, try to make this a purely suffrage demonstration entirely uncomplicated by any other problems. Instead of viewing votes for women as part of a broader push for social equality, Paul and others separated racial equality from electoral equality. Paul had attempted to keep news about black marchers out of the press, but when black suffragists uh, Mary Church Tar Terrell and Adela Hunt Logan encouraged black women's clubs across the country to participate. Newspapers began printing stories about the racial rift. Nevertheless, black suffragists rallied, and the question of whether to segregate the parade continued up to the day of the event. 72 hours before the parade, a representative from NASA sent an overnight telegram to Paul chastising her for so, quote, strongly urging colored women not to march that it amounts to official discrimination, which is distinctly contrary to instructions from national headquarters. The message ordered Paul to instruct her parade marshals to not exclude black participants. Still, on the day of the event, African-American marchers reported a cold reception. Absentee or uncooperative registry clerks proved an inconvenience. During rehearsal, parade organizers released an official order to segregate, with black marchers being sent to the back of the parade. However, Spitfire Ida Wells Burnett slipped away from her unit. Her fellow delegates assumed she had left, but shortly after the parade began, Wells appeared from the crowd and joined her Illinois section, flanked on either side by her friends Virginia Brooks and Bell Squire. And a photographer from Chicago's Daily Tribune captured an image of the triumphant Wells and her colleagues in procession. Mm -hmm. You have to see this photo. We'll link it in the mm -hmm. thing. I mean, it, I love the look on her face. She's kind of like, hey, like that. I'm here. <laughs> you should also watch Iron Jot Angels because it captures that moment perfectly. Awesome. She's just like, and I'm here. And what are you going to do about it? And what it? are you going to do about it? March, yeah. march, march, march. <laughs> mm, 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 mm. Yeah. Nevertheless, Alice Paul, despite her flaws, was essential to reinvigorating the American campaign for a constitutional suffrage amendment. This approach was embraced by women social urban reformers who saw a need growing out of a dramatically changing American womanhood. In the early 20th century, American women were increasingly less rural and less Protestant. They were more Catholic and Jewish and were more foreign-born. 
The changing landscape and demography of the American public, the growth of industry and urbanization created new issues women had to face. Food adulteration in the mass production of food, prostitution, infant mortality, but also the dirtiness of politics like bribery and graft. Progressive women, black and white, were mostly middle class, but saw themselves as the bulwark between the preservation of family life and the corruption and stink of cities and politicians. A new generation of progressive women in the early 20th century embraced the idea of the vote as a tool rather than an idealistic principle. Votes would allow women to address certain political issues that were different from the issues that men cared about. Their slogans and campaigns revolved around these core principles that, quote, women have to get the right to vote to clean things up and, quote, quote, you've got to call in the cleaning women. So these ad campaigns pictured like a woman sweeping with her broom away corrupt politicians. It's not too radical. It's still relegating women's work to the home and only focusing on, quote, women's issues, but it's still seeking votes for women. So they're essentially reviving Willard's Absolutely. idea for um, for how to mobilize people to get the yeah. vote. And women, you know, women, women clean up everything. So right. why don't we get in there and we clean up politics as well? Exactly. Yeah. More importantly, there were more and more women wage earners and more working class women who joined the fight for women's suffrage. Their politics was, were a bit more radical than that of the middle class arguments for protection of the home. Labor unions and organizers such as Rose Schneiderman argued that working women needed the vote for economic reasons. At a public suffrage debate in 1912, one New York senator against women's suffrage said, Get women into the arena of politics and its alliances and distressing contests. The delicacy is gone. You emasculize them. <laughs> and Schneiderman coolly responded, Women in the laundries stand for 13 or 14 hours in the terrible steam and heat with their hands in hot starch. Surely these women won't lose any more of their beauty and charm by putting a ballot in a box once a year than they are likely to use standing in foundries or laundries all year round. Snap, Mike snap! <laughs> As suffragists waited for the constitutional door to reopen, they went to the states themselves for franchise rights. And I return to our earlier point that despite the 14th and 15th Amendments, the courts basically turned sovereign power of the vote over to the states. If suffragists could convince male voters to amend their state constitutions, women would gain full voting rights up to and including the right to vote for Congress and president. And this is a crucial fact that is not particularly appreciated. The first major state campaign to convince male voters to amend their state constitution and support full voting rights for women was in Colorado in 1893. Now, women in Wyoming were actually the first American women granted the right to vote, um, not counting New Jersey, mentioned at the top of the episode. But Wyoming granted women the franchise in its territorial constitution so that when it became a state in 1890, women there already had the vote and did not need to lobby the men um, in their state to change the state constitution. So Colorado was the first state with a live suffrage issue. Black women were an important part of the Colorado campaign to victory. There were about 3,000 black women in Colorado who gained the right to vote in 1893. By the time the 19th Amendment was ratified 27 years later, the women of Colorado had already voted for a president six times. Yeah. 
1911, California became the sixth state to grant women suffrage. It was by far the most important state to amend its constitution up to that point because it was a large state with a diverse and modern economy. The California suffrage campaign was also the first truly modern one, utilizing new modes of transportation and marketing. The campaign featured modern technology. Women drove their Model Ts all over California, going into small towns. Suffragists would stand up on top of the cars and someone would, you know, yell or play a trombone while she would call everybody to come and listen to why California men should change their constitution to allow suffrage. They made suffrage movies that were shown in local Nickelodeons. The campaign was also characterized by elegant and glamorous images. Um, And one of these images you might have seen, it's a famous suffrage poster, um, came out of this campaign. The poster depicts a woman wearing gold. The whole poster is kind of yellow and gold. And her head is in front of a rising sun, and it's overlooking the Golden Gate, obviously before the Golden Gate Bridge was was made. So we'll put that again in the show notes. There's also a really cool image of a woman in gold who's like stepping over the entire United States coming from West to East. And it's like the caption says something like, look out New York, we're coming for you. Yeah. there. Um, I've seen that one. I haven't seen that caption on it, but I don't think that came out of this no, it's, California it's campaign. Yeah. But yeah, but yeah, I mean, it's essentially, it's, it's, it's a woman yeah. walking from West to East yeah. and like you see kind of like, order behind her and then she's heading toward this kind of like massive chaos yes, almost yes, you yeah, know yeah and it's like you know here we go we're cleaning up the cleaning u.s up from the US. from west to east here With we come sparkly gold dress <laughs> like in colorado and other suffrage states women in california actively used their votes once they won them to address many political issues like raising the minimum wage for women workers, raising the age of consent, establishing juvenile justice courts, and passing laws to control prostitution, Um, not by penalizing the women, but by penalizing the men who profited from the trade. However, enfranchising women state by state had its limits, as it would never enfranchise all American women. Politicians in the Republican-controlled industrial Northeast were opposed to women's suffrage because manufacturers there depended on large female and child labor forces. Manufacturers feared that if women got the vote, they would pass laws that would curtail these horrible working conditions in which their female employees were forced to work. In the Jim Crow Democratic South, the specter of black women voting was an absolute barrier to change. The Democratic Party in southern states had effectively disenfranchised black male voters so they weren't about to let black women vote for fear that it would reopen the door to allow black men to vote too. However, the growing numbers of enfranchised women state by state began to reopen the door to the opportunity for a constitutional amendment to enfranchise women nationally as the number of enfranchised women was growing year by year. During World War I, women took on increasingly public roles, and and obviously from well before and throughout the war, they were demanding the right to vote. In some countries, women were granted the right to vote even before the war, interestingly, again, in the sort of fringes of Europe and European society. 
New Zealand, for example, um, which was a colony of Britain at the time, passed universal suffrage in 1883 uh, for men, women, and the aboriginals of the island, which was pretty landmark for that era. National women's suffrage movements were successful first in Europe in the northern countries, with Latvia first in 1905, Finland in 1906, Norway in 1913, Denmark and Iceland in 1915, and Estonia, the Netherlands, and the Russian Republic in 1917. Uruguay in South America also granted women the right to vote in 1917. In many of these countries, women's participation in World War I demonstrated to lawmakers that women were more than capable of handling the demands of civic participation. They'd been munitions factory workers, ambulance drivers, just behind the front lines, baseball players, everything. If it was, to that point, considered a man's job, women did it. They had to, during the so-called Great War. To continue to deny them the right to vote in places like Britain and the U.S. was ungrateful and unfeasible. So in 1918, as the war was winding down, many European states passed women's suffrage laws. Austria, Georgia, Poland, the United Kingdom, and several of the socialists. Soviet Socialist Republics that would eventually be part of the USSR. Azerbaijan became the first Muslim-majority country to grant women the right to vote, also in 1918. In 1919, Belgium, Hungary, Luxembourg, Sweden, Ukraine, and southern Rhodesia passed their laws. And then in 1920, Albania and Czechoslovakia. And finally, the United States followed suit. So back in the U.S., by 1912, 10% of the nation's women were already casting their votes for president. By 1916, it was 14%. All those states, of course, were in the West. At this point, one branch of the suffrage movement, which named itself the National Women's Party, determined to organize voting women in the states where women could already vote to use their franchise strategically on behalf of a federal amendment. Membership in the NWP was limited to only enfranchised women. Now, this branch, the NWP, was led by Alice Paul and Lucy Burns, and they mobilized against the re-election of President Wilson. Wilson was a Democrat, and his party controlled both houses of Congress, so they were in charge of everything in our national government. His party was largely controlled by white supremacists who were dead set against federal interference into voting. Despite the National Women Party's efforts, he is reelected, although by a very narrow margin, and was inaugurated March 4th of 1917. Is that really late? Yeah, because we do January? we do inauguration in January. I don't I don't remember when it switches. Huh. Weird. Yeah. I don't know anything about America. <laughs> On November 6, 1917, New York became the first eastern state to amend its constitution to enfranchise women. New York was the most populous and most powerful state in the Union um, and was now answerable to women. It had the largest congressional delegation, too, with 45 representatives. This turning point was marked by the president's decision, after six years of holding out against this, to finally support a constitutional amendment for women's suffrage. However, the National Women's Party continued its pressure on Wilson with daily picketing of the White House. This is the first time that anything like this is done, that a protest movement is picketing the president himself. And again, you've probably seen the images of women standing outside the White House gates with banners that read, quote, Mr. President, how long must women wait for liberty? Wilson campaigned on the grounds that he kept us out of war. One month after he was reelected, the U.S. entered World War I. After the U.S. entered the war, the stakes of all this went way up. 
In June 1917, the police began arresting women who picketed outside the White House. Undeterred, women marched to the White House on Independence Day, carrying banners reading, Governments derive their just power from the consent of the governed. And they were quickly arrested and put in jail. In August of 1917, violence broke out between demonstrators and servicemen. The demonstrators were carrying banners that addressed the president as Kaiser Wilson. In October 1917, police warned the picketing women that if they continued to picket, they could spend up to six months in prison. Members of the NWP continued to picket and were sentenced to jail, varying from three days to seven months. After being arrested once, Alice Paul and Rose Winslow returned to the picket lines. They were rearrested and then sentenced to seven months in prison, where they commenced a hunger strike. They were violently force-fed. Many women arrested on November 10, 1917, were sent to the Okogwan Workhouse in Virginia, where they refused to put on prison uniforms. The guards beat them in what is now known as the Night of Terror. Concurrently, organizations like the Leslie Bureau of Suffrage Commission, formed by Carrie Chapman Catt, were working to spread the word and educate average men and women about women's suffrage. They would issue press releases touting the benefits of women's suffrage, pointing out facts like that New Zealand, where women had voted for over 20 years, had the lowest infant mortality rate in the whole world. Or they pointed out that states with women's suffrage had more women serving on boards of health and charities than non-suffrage states. So they're basically saying to people, look, if you care about infant mortality, if you care about the poor and the needy, then women's suffrage should be important to you. Another group that's usually considered conservative, the National Mothers Congress, was pro-women's suffrage. Dr. Mary Sherwood, director of the Mothers Congress Department of Obstetrics, implored members to demand that elected leaders enforce mandatory birth and death registration in their states. If they refused, Sherwood told her readers those lawmakers should be, quote, regarded as enemies of progress and enemies of your home, and that their defeat is brought about in the next election. She says this in 1917, so three years before the 19th Amendment grants all women the right to vote. It's an example of how powerful women's votes were becoming before the passage of the Constitutional Amendment. In many ways, the truly consequential change in politics came because of the prospect of women empowered at the ballot box. However, suffrage was never a sure thing. There was monumental pushback against suffrage. Detractors argued that if women voted, the American family as they knew it would be ruined. From 1915 through 1919, politicians and critics poo-pooed about it not being the right time for women voters because we were at war, and then we had just finished a war, and who knows what the future might bring. All the kind of tropes that are, you know, carried out when somebody's against something, right? And then there were those that were upset that women voters could upend the racial order. Women voters might upset the southern states, which were trying to maintain order through white supremacy. In 1918, the House of Representatives finally agreed to a full floor vote of the amendment. Jeanette Rankin from Montana introduced the House bill. The fact that Rankin was a woman in a member of Congress, you know, right, is a reminder that women were voting before the 19th Amendment, right? But they were still two years out from passing the 19th Amendment. 
The vote in the Senate took another 18 months and at times seemed almost impossible. It was the 1918 midterm elections that shifted control over the Senate from the Democrats to the Republicans that finally made the difference, which is a reminder, people, of how important it is to vote in midterm elections. They're more important than anything. Amen. By the time the Senate vote passed, it was June 1919. Suffragists were desperate to get ratification in time for the 1920 presidential election because they expected that a turn of politics would be very reactionary. Ratification of a constitutional amendment is difficult because it requires three quarters of the states to approve. And in 1919, there was a powerful and well-funded anti-suffrage movement that put all of its energy into defeating ratification. One year after the Senate passage uh, in June or July of 1920, they were still one vote shy. Democrats controlling the Deep South opposed on white supremacist grounds. Conservative New England Republicans also refused to ratify it. The final battle came down to Tennessee. It was the rare Southern state that had both a Republican and a Democratic Party. A special session was called by the governor, and suffragists and anti-suffragists descended on the legislature. Up to the last minute, suffragists did not think that they had the vote. The 19th Amendment passed the Tennessee legislature by one vote. The tie-breaking legislator was a 24-year-old Republican named Harry Byrne. He was a Republican in a democratically controlled state. And... I don't know, this is, this is kind of a story or whatever, but the thing that swayed him, and supposedly. supposedly, is his mother sent him a letter urging him to be a good boy and vote for ratification. Now, the letter does exist, mm. right? But we don't know if he was already kind of leaning that way yeah. or whatever, but it's it's a really nice little story. Like she, she wrote him, she's like, be a good boy and vote for this ratification. Listen so, to your mom in that. There, there you are, listen mm-hmm. to your mom. The governor... Fearful that the opponents of suffrage would figure another sort of dirty, dirty trick. Like they had been bribing, getting people drunk, and tapping phones to to stop the passage of this amendment um, or the, the ratification of this amendment. He signed the bill and sent it off to Washington in the middle of the night. So the women's suffrage amendment barely achieved passage and ratification. It could have been easily defeated. There was nothing inevitable about women's enfranchisement. One third of the women eligible to vote were able to register. The amendment was signed in August. We, as you you know, we vote in November. So there were only three months. Um, Women did not start voting in parity with men until the 1980s. Uh, The last state, and just uh, to kind of bring this around, the last state to ratify the 19th Amendment was Mississippi in 1984. (laughs) Whoops, kind of forgot about there. (laughs) So women weren't allowed to vote in Mississippi until 1984? They were. They were just like, oh, this thing's been sitting around on somebody's desk. Let's go ahead and sign it. Mm. Oh, let's, yeah, no, it it, it had passed, but Mississippi obviously was not one of the the three-fourths states who who had signed it into law. It's the other quarter. Right. So what are some useful takeaways from this story, right? Um, One that is very important, state elections matter, right? If Henry Burns had been some other guy, 
Tennessee would not have ratified and the 19th Amendment could have gone the way of the ERA. And see, I mean, there's like a really great John Oliver segment about state elections and how state states pass so many laws every year. Yeah. It's really those are what matter more in many cases than the national sort of fights that we embroil ourselves in. But everybody needs to be paying attention to their local, their regional, their state politics. Like that's if you're going to get educated about anything, get educated about that, because more than likely, like the United States Congress and Senate, they're just going to be embroiled in their their in their two party battles. Yeah, I mean, it's the, it's it's local and state laws that really will affect you on a Every daily day. basis. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So this is just a reminder to our listeners that democracy is something that we have to work at. It's not infallible or a given. A famous Martin Luther King Jr. saying uh, that injustice anywhere is a threat to justice anywhere, right? right. So it's something that we have to work at. Yeah. Um, do not take it for granted. And democracies have failed. Right. In 1930s Germany, voters elected jingoist patriarchal leaders who used fear, violence, and racialized legislation to dismantle their democracy. In 1930s Spain, one of the most liberal governments of that country's history was destroyed when the military leaders saw a who saw a democracy as a challenge to their power and launched a civil war that tore the nation apart. We decide what democracy looks like. Restrictions on citizenship and who gets to vote continue in this country and all over the world. Both official restrictions like laws that require government-issued ID to vote or that require one to have a permanent address. And there are plenty of unofficial restrictions and prohibitions like having limited hours for people to get to the polling places, inaccessible polling places, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So we have to... We have to protect our votes. We have to protect the votes of others. We have to protect our democracy. And so it's 2020. It's the year 2020. It's 100 years since women got this vote. Um, it's not a given. It's not a given. So None of this is a given. Make sure you vote in your local, your state, and your national elections this coming November. And happy centenary for women's suffrage, my peeps. Thank you for listening. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Join our Facebook pod squad history. What is it? Dig history pod squad. <laughs> and stay tuned for other um, episodes in this series. And the coming announcement of our Himalaya Lyceum yes. partnerships. Very exciting. Bye. Bye. This podcast was produced by the historians of Dig, Elizabeth Garner Masaryk, Sarah Hanley Cousins, Marissa Rhodes, and me, Avril Earls. Thanks for listening. Obstetrics. Oh, obstetrics. You've got to call in the cleaning women. Cleaning. The cleaning women. The New York. The New York. The New York. Dr. Mary Sherwood. 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 Was really flouted as an idea. Oh, stream suffered to source. God damn it. I feel like I have marble mouth today. The voting rights of male. Oops, I'll let you finish coughing. <coughs> Sorry. Get it out deep and throaty. That was what I was missing. It's very deep in there. Wait, am I talking? Oh, shit. I messed up the rest of them. Oh, you're dead. Just read them all. Just okay. Read them. Oh my god. Two party battles. 
in their two party battles. <gasps> Mother <f> <laughs> Somebody's here. I just said this. Okay, good. <laughs> I wasn't gonna say anything.